Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Coming up today, as we hurtle into exam season, we turn the tables and put some questions to the schools minister, Nick Gibb. We talk tests, we talk teachers, we talk Zoom, parents' evenings, uh, and much else besides, including how he ended up in an episode of The Simpsons. All that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with the columnist panel. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, let me say a very good morning to Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen. Hello. And this week, someone called Matthew is, of course, Matthew Paris. Morning, Matthew. Good morning. Uh, let's start with uh, the government's illegal immigration bill. Judges will no longer be able to deport migra- migrant uh, migrants abroad after ri- Rishi. Oh, no, no. Let me start that again. Judges will no longer be able to block migrant deportations after Rishi Sunak caved in to Conservative MPs who threatened to rebel over his legislation to tackle small boats. Um, Matthew, what's interesting about this is it doesn't appear he needed to cave in because there weren't enough of them. So what's going on? Yes, but he would then have probably had to rely on a few Labour votes, a bit of Labour support as well, which he, he wouldn't have got. No, there weren't enough of them, but... I think Rishi Sunak's whole instinct, I'm not sure I agree with him, but I think his whole instinct is 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 not to divide the party and try to keep people together. And if by means of uh, a, a couple of concessions, and there were concessions that he didn't make, a couple of concessions, uh, he, he can um, get the party all voting in the same lobby. Think of the headlines we, we might have uh, given it if there had been a, a rebellion of 30 or 35 or 40 or... And I suppose, Manvin, given the whole point of him doing this uh, legislation is really just to, to reassure the public he's taking a tough line on it, the last thing he wants is a row with his own MPs in public, albeit not very many of them, that suggests he's not as tough as he, as he might be. Well, I think it might, it might end up looking rather bad for him, though, if with these concessions, you know, when this bill goes to the Lords, it, it gets 
it gets sent back, which I think is uh, is you know will probably end up happening because I think it'll be seen as going too far for you know imagine what the law lords are going to make of the idea that you uh, overrule the judges effectively. That's not going to go down very well. Um, so I don't know. I think he might actually have ended up scuppering his own bill, and he has made this a key pledge. You know, he keeps saying this is something he is going to get done. So I I don't know. I mean, Matthew, I'd, I'd be fascinated with, to know whether you think he'll he'll get this through now. Well, he will in time because the the Lords can be overruled if they overrule, after, but it takes a year. Um, my impression is that... They're that, not in that, time for the election, probably. Not in time for the yeah. election. And my, my, but my impression is uh, the government have always realised that, that there was likely to be trouble in the Lords, whether they made these concessions or not. And it may be that he has to go into the election saying, we're still doing this. And there's a delay in the House of Lords. Sorry. And actually, a row with the House of Lords is better than a row with his own MPs. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes That's good if, point. if you're picking, yeah. picking who you want a row with. Yes. And without getting too bogged down in the technicalities of the Parliament Act, uh, the Lords can keep taking it out because it's not a manifesto promise because we've had several Prime Ministers since we last had a Tory manifesto. They can. It's a kind of, it's called ping-pong. Mm. And it goes backwards and forwards. But in the end, after a year, the Commons prevails. It's interesting. I thought, I noticed Matt Veen at PMQs yesterday. Rishi Sunak, I think more than once said, we are stopping the boats which is a sort of, when you get sort of into the, the, the tense that he's using, he's not promising to stop the boats. He says we are stopping them. And yet we've got record numbers already uh, again this year. It, do you think there's a pro- point at which it becomes a problem if you've repeatedly said you're stopping them and you quite clearly aren't? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's ironic because he said that yesterday in PMQs and at the same time in the High Court yesterday, there was a, this case going on about this... Uh, Essex military base, which is going to be used for accommodation, or is currently being used, I think, um, for um, for refugees, for people people seek, seeking asylum. And in that, they quite clearly showed that they expect the number to go up by tens of thousands by um, by the end of this year. So you know, <laughs> clearly they don't think they're actually going to be stopping the boats. They're already making plans for what they're going to do with the people they expect will be coming over. So you're right. I think you know it's very hard if you keep pinning your colours to this mask and sort of saying, this is my pledge to you, we're already doing it. Um, and the numbers just don't stack up. I think also for him, you know, sort of so much of the Rishi Sunak image was sort of, it's a big change from Boris Johnson. Um, he's not going to be tearing up international law, ignoring treaties that we've signed up to. And this just slightly flies in the face of that. I, Go on, I, I suppose the government's argument would be that to, to say we're stopping the boats means uh, where we're pushing through legislation that will stop the boats rather than we have stopped the boats, which they palpably haven't. The government would also say that perhaps the surge in numbers is is due to the people smugglers saying to people, you'd better hurry up mm. because soon you, you, you won't be able to get in after all. Uh, and you, you, have, you have to say, if people complain that the Tories are saying we're stopping the boats, we have a plan to stop the boats... What is Labour's plan mm. to stop the boats? And as far as I know, they don't have one. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Matthew, was um, I think it was in The Guardian yesterday, there was a piece by Jess Elgott about how one of the myths in Westminster is that, for, certainly last year, that Liz Truss was the hardline right-winger and Rishi Sunak was the woolly hand-ring in Liberal. And actually, he is more on the right than lots of people who thought they liked him often realise. I've always thought that. I don't know him very well, but uh, once I had met him and talked to him, I got the impression that he, he was a kind of intelligent, basically basically stable right-wing 
conservative. There, there are a, a crazy gang in the Conservative Party <laughs> and he's not part of them, but he's definitely on the right. And we, which is why when you see we've been talking about crime, law, you know, law and order, small boats. Yeah, he tax. really believes that yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's not all uh, it's not all just acting. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I suspect we're going to talk about that again. Um, Manvit, yeah. let's talk about uh, this this new episode of the Stories of Our Times podcast. 20 years ago this month, Poland, alongside 10 other mainly Eastern and Central European countries, signed up to join the EU. And Tony Blair famously uh, threw the door open to them uh, much earlier than other countries. And you've been speaking to the uh, foreign feature set of the Sunday Times, Matthew Campbell, about how now a booming Polish economy is luring them back. Let's just take a listen. I spoke to a young woman called Agnieszka Uba, who had returned to Poland. It was interesting what she said about how the change in the time that she'd been away, that living standards had increased quite spectacularly before she went. Her mother, for instance, would never have had a designer handbag, or her friends in Poland, their, their mothers never did. Well, now, 10 years later, most of my friends in Poland have designer bags. But now they do, and they all go on holidays to the Dominican Republic and so forth. The quality of living Mm. is 10 times better than 10 years ago. Manfred, it's really interesting this, the, 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 the sort of the, the influx of Poles. Actually, some could say, you know, played quite a big part in some of the people who then decided they wanted to leave the EU because it changed where they live so much. And now, now so many of them are going back because the economy in Poland is doing well. It's really interesting. Really interesting. Um, you know, we, looking at the figures, it's, it's quite substantial. We think about a quarter of a million people have gone back. Um, and it is because the Polish economy is booming. I mean, you'd heard her there, sort of one of the people Matthew had spoken to talking about designer bags. But, you know, there's so much more. It now has this booming tech sector. There are, you know, when 20 years ago, when they joined Europe, unemployment was incredibly high, which was why so many people left. And now it has a booming economy, um, lots of opportunity. And increasingly, you've sort of got people who've been educated here, you know, sort of um, one, one of the other polls Matthew had spoken to was sort of, you know, Cambridge educated, had been a headmistress here. And it was partly the lure of this booming economy in Poland. But also, I think, you know, Brexit has obviously played um, a hu- huge part in this, where it's partly that it's, you know, it's made life a little bit harder for people who have decided to stay. They've had to fill in lots of forms and go to lots of tests and things like that. But also just that sense that they suddenly felt people didn't want to be part of Europe. And I think, you know, quite a few of them talked a bit about sort of like xenophobic attacks and, and not really feeling welcome anymore. So there's been a number of things happening at the same time. But I thought that, you know, the, the, the fact that the Polish economy is doing so well, and, you know, also sort of housing here. So, you know, you could be a headmistress here and still struggle to buy uh, a decent house and you go back to Poland and you can get one of these beautiful apartments in the centre of Warsaw mm. um, with a booming economy and you suddenly realise that actually the standard of living that, you know, you can have in Poland is so much better. I mean, it's almost at the point where I think people would see opportunity and maybe sort of move to Poland to get are you pa- new Are you packing jobs. your bags as well, ma'am? Right? I was going to say, except... You do the uh, podcast of anywhere. Brexit's going to make that much harder. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, that is true. So freedom of movement isn't really something, a luxury for us anymore. But um, but it's really interesting to see how many Poles are going back to, to benefit from it. It's interesting, Matthew, because there was a time when the Polish government was concerned about the number of Poles mm. that were, you know, the sort of brain drain, young, fit, clever Poles who were coming to the UK. Yes, it did. It, it was um, it was an excellent column by 
by Matthew Campbell. I, I wouldn't myself have started it with the Countess of Carnarvon, who is apparently now going to have to hoover her own carpet. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, terrible state of affairs for her. And, and, and the fact is that so many of the Poles who came here were, were not carpet hoovers at all. Uh, they, were, they were technicians. Mm. They, they, they had skills. I, I do wonder whether, you know, say I had a daughter or a son, I might suggest they learn Polish. It's it's one of the few European economies that's really expanding still yeah. quite fast. It's really, it is really interesting, that. Um, and plumbers, plumbers, builders. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, Don't talk to me about plumbers. Uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> you, you, I'll just have a personal question, Matthew. Have you got trouble with your plumbing? <laughs> Actually, I've got I've got a B-Day which has a an upward squirting jet. Yeah. And um, <laughs> this, you may not realise this is one of the Brexit dividends. Yes. Uh, that that uh, b- 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 the European Union, I understand, had banned these things uh, <laughs> due to being dangerous. But now with the Brexit dividend, we can all squirt water up our bottoms. It's, it's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> so is, it, is, this, is this an illegal B-Day? Well, uh, I'm not sure. Is it a very old one or it's, a new one? <laughs> it's an, a, an old one and it yes. needs repairing. Oh, I see. And I'm only relying on what the plumber told me. It might be wrong. Well, <laughs> who knew? Who knew? I had no idea. Manvin, have you got a B-Day? Afraid not. No. I, I, I was going to say, I didn't, I didn't know they still existed. No. Um, but, you know, if, if you're looking for a Brexit dividend, yes. I suppose, may, maybe B-Days will... will we finally <laughs> found it. We finally found what the Brexit dividend is. There's, there's not much in that column, so... Yeah, yeah. By all means, put, put B-Days in. Now, Matthew, you hold a record. It, it is the parliamentary record for the London Marathon, which I, I uh, scored in 1985... I I was an MP at the time. I, I managed it in two hours and 32 minutes and 57 seconds. Which is and, astonishing. Well, I, I trained very hard for five yeah. years, each year getting rather faster than the last. And While I'm, also being an MP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I would run in for late votes, uh, running down the Wandsworth Road in my little short shorts at about <laughs> half past 11 at night. But what 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 encourages me is that uh, no member of parliament is much more than within an hour I know. Of, uh, of my record so far so i'm so proud of myself <laughs> it's the well, best thing i've ever done so the london <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of uh, there are lots of mp's doing it uh, doing the london marathon this weekend hoping to beat your record uh, matthew including uh, conservative mp paul scully is on the line now hi paul Hi, Matt. I'm certainly not hoping to uh, break Matthew's <laughs> record. That's incredible. That's phenomenal. If I can do it in just under half, um, double that, I'll be quite happy, frankly. Have you done it before? I did it a couple of years ago. I did it in four, four hours, 18 then. So I was quite pleased with myself. I'm turning 55 in a week's time, so I was, what, 53 oh, at the time. Brilliant. And I was yeah, that, that's a key, that's a key point. How old, how old were you, I, I was 35, and by the time I was 55, I couldn't have done it in four hours, probably couldn't have done it in five hours. Uh, Paul's <laughs> doing really well. And Paul, are you doing it in short shorts or dressed as a rhinoceros no, or a toilet? No, or something? Slightly, slightly, no, slightly longer than short shorts, and as, as proud as I was doing my four hours 18, when I was coming around Port Carlos, around Big Ben, that sort of area, near the end, I was still overtaken by a six-foot Macmillan coffee mug um, <laughs> and then as I came round the last corner uh, in the mall you're sitting there thinking okay fine am I going to have a sprint finish 
any thought of that was knocked out of me when I saw this woman who I thought had left for death 15 miles before in flamenco gear and high heels. She now has, she now has the world record for marathon in, in high heels. And are you doing it in high heels this weekend, Paul? No, no, very much flat, very much flat, very much running shoes. I'll tell you what, those, the running shoes, the first time I bought a pair of running shoes, and if I could have them in black, I'd wear them every day of the week. They're the most comfortable shoes I've got. Paul, as, as, as I came round the, the last bend, the crowds were all cheering. And I thought, wow, I'm only a humble Tory backbencher. They, they, I'm obviously more famous than I'd realised. <laughs> Later, I realised that just ahead of me were the women leading the pack for the, for, for the, the woman's yeah, part of the race. Oh, so that's who they were cheering. I'm afraid so. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> but it's just the ego of the, you know, the politician, isn't it? I had a similar experience in, um, as I was coming through um, some of the early stages. I had everyone going, go, Paul, go, Paul. And I realised I hadn't written my name on the, um, my shirt front. It was actually a guy just behind me happened to be called Paul. So, uh... Manvidi, are you a runner? Have you done the marathon? No, no, to be honest, just hearing somebody competing in, in heels. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling the pain on her behalf. <laughs> <Yes>. Like, like <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be cringing for the rest of the day. I can't imagine anything worse. I mean, I struggle to walk in them. Um, but bravo her. Uh, and bravo, anyone who's done it. So honestly, oh, well, well done, Matthew and Paul. The thing Good that I, I did once do a 10k around London, which is a, a perfect cheats thing because you don't go to all the you don't do all the Greenwich bit. You just mm. run past all the landmarks, and so, so you get to go past Big Ben and all that. Mm. That was plenty for me. 10k was fine. Yeah, I think Matt Manveen looks as if she could be quite you a look, good logster. Yeah, you know, <laughs> lean and fit looking. If you'd have told oh, me, you'd done, if Matthew, you, if you told us you'd done the marathon loads of times, we wouldn't have. Yeah, been, yeah no. if I'd said that, everyone oh, would have laughed. Yeah. But if you'd said that. I'm, I'm so lame. I've I've only ever done things like the moonwalk, which is sort of just just literally walking across London for charity in the middle of the night. Um, My wife did know, that. Nearly crippled her. She did a knee in. She ended up having, I mean, a hospital, uh, having an operation. <laughs> but you know what about it? But the thing is about it as well as you, you talked about charity, and that's what um, so many of the MPs are doing. I'm running for Maggie's Cancer Centre. I've got a Maggie Centre next to the Royal Marsden in my constituency. You've got Jeremy Hunt running for a charity. Um, James Dudridge, Alex Norris from the Labour Party. There's a lot of they're doing really good, raising some good money and awareness of those charities. That's the that's the one thing we can do as MPs, as public figures, we can raise a bit of awareness for them as well. Um, so, amongst the other MPs running, Paul, who who do you want to beat? Do you want to beat the Chancellor? Is it good? Is it good for your career progression if you beat the Chancellor? Oh, oh, oh absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, he's, but he's far more athletic than me. So, look, I've, I've, my training has not gone particularly well this time around. So, I'd be just, I just need to get through it. So, uh, last time I did it, I was straight on the. You know, your loved ones usually come and give you a protein bar. I was my, my loved one gave me a suitcase because I had to get up to party conference because it was still in October. So my first words in a speech in party conference was "ow" as I was getting up on a stage. <laughs> can, can I make a semi-serious point? Uh, if you run it in two and a half hours, you suffer for two and a half hours. If you run it for four and a half hours, you suffer for four and a half hours. The real heroes are actually the slower runners, not the faster. There ones. you are, look, Paul. <laughs> There's the motivation to do it in two and a half yeah. hours. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be like that ultra marathon runner and get in a car though. I'm going. <laughs> that was shocking. <laughs> it's how much you suffer afterwards that I'd be worried about as well. Yeah, yeah. It's true. And Paul, on the subject of running, you're 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 you multi multi hatted uh, minister, including minister for London. Is it right you might run for London mayor? 
I am thinking about it. Yeah, I'm th- thinking about it. It's driving me when I, you know, a lot of my constituents, all the stuff that are um, driving them at the moment, whether it's ULIS expansion, housing, wider transport issues and safety, all sit with the man. So, uh, so it's definitely something I'm giving serious consideration to. What do you need to do? What do you think you need to do? Just hang yourself off a zip wire? Yeah, yeah, I'll get my flags out, out, uh, and things. but no, no, let's, let's, let's see what happens, but I've got plenty of, uh, of, the, of the day job, and of course this marathon that's concentrating my mind at the moment. Uh, just finally, Paul, will Dominic Raab still be Deputy Prime Minister by the end of the day? That I don't know, I haven't seen uh, what's happening with the report at the moment, but obviously, uh, you know, it's something the uh, Prime Minister's got to give due consideration, got to give serious consideration, because, you know, he, he's got to, um, he's got to give, be given a fair, fair hearing if there's any sense of bullying, though, you know, people we, in the workplace, people need, need uh, the very best from their ministers, so let's see what happens. And if there has been bullying, will he have to go? Uh, well, uh, you know, that sits with the Prime Minister, so it depends on, you know, what, what the level is, what the consideration is, the evidence. I don't really want to com- comment without seeing that evidence myself. I don't think it's fair to do so. Well, from what we're hearing, it might be pretty soon anyway. Paul, very best of luck at the weekend. Maybe we'll try and get you back next week and see how you got on when you when you can crawl towards the phone. Uh, Paul, no, th- th- thanks a lot. Cheers, Paul. That's Paul, Paul Scully there, Conservative uh, MP, Minister for London. Don't forget, you can read the stories we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description and you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast wherever you get your podcast from and read Matthew in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we put your questions to Nick Gibb. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Under this coalition government, we are once more travelling in the same direction as the most ambitious and the most progressive nations. There's no profession more noble, no calling more vital, no vocation more admirable than teaching. And this white paper gives us the opportunity to become the world's leading education nation. And I commend it to the House. The world's leading education nation. That was Michael Gove, then Education Secretary, launching the Coalition Government's Schools White Paper back in 2010. Sitting alongside him was my guest who's just joined me in the studio, Nick Gibb, who remarkably has been a minister in the Education Department since 2010, with only one uh, small gap year break when Boris Johnson briefly dispensed with his services. Uh, But even before he was a minister, he was a shadow schools minister for five years, and he joins me now. Hi, Nick. Hi, good morning. Uh, we'll come to whether you've delivered on that ambition we heard from Michael Gove at the moment. First of all, let's talk about how have you survived so long, all the turmoil uh, in uh, in politics since 2010? How have you survived for so long? Well, I had a few times when I didn't survive <laughs> but came back, but I just get on with the job. And I like to think that we have delivered on the ambition that Michael Gove talked about in that introduction. He was introducing the uh, first white paper, The Importance of Teaching, 
And we did want to address all the fundamental problems with our school system. Too many children were being let down. The reading, teaching wasn't good enough. We were declining in international league tables. And, you know, from school visits I was having around the country in those five years in opposition, you know, I saw some terrible examples of really able children who were being let down by the quality of education they were being offered. And I'd like to think that over the last 10 years, we have addressed many of those problems that um, that our education system faced. So just, I was thinking, we've had sort of 15 housing ministers in the time that you've basically been the education minister. Do you think that, that your experience is a lesson that actually we could have, you know, maybe we could have achieved a bit more on the housing front if there's somebody been in that job for, for so long? That's possibly true. I do think it's important to be in, in posts, you know, if you're doing a, you know a, an okay job, to stay in post, so you can really learn the detail of the of the job. And having spent two years in, on the select committee, five years as a shadow schools minister, and then ten years as the actual schools minister, you do really get under the bonnet of of the education system. And I, sometimes I think I know quite a bit more than some of the civil servants who are uh, advising <laughs> oh, the us. blob. <laughs> have, have you beaten the blob, the famous blob that Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings, when his advisor, used to wail against? Well, I like to think what we've done is liberated the teaching profession so they themselves can actually challenge some of the orthodoxies. There's this thing that James Callaghan called the secret garden uh, that no one was allowed to enter, not, not teachers, not politicians, only the education professors were able to determine <laughs> education policy. Now, the, the, through the academies programme, through social media, through everything we've done, we've liberated, I'd like to think, the teaching profession to engage in those debates. And if you look on the, if you look on the blog sites, the social media, you'll see a lot of teachers debating issues like knowledge-rich curriculum, how do you teach reading, what's the best way of teaching arithmetic to primary school pupils. And that's a debate now that the, the teaching profession is leading. And we've had lots of questions on that. If you do want to send in a question to Nick, uh, you can text me 87222, type me the word times, or email me matt at times.radio. Let's just go back to that, that clip Michael goes. Said he, he said he wanted the UK to become the world's leading education nation. We, we haven't done that, have we? We're rising up through the league table. So for the reading ability of nine-year-olds, because of all the phonics stuff we did yeah. and the phonics screening check and so on, change, we've changed the way reading is taught in primary schools. It's now evidence-based using phonics at a cat. And we've risen from joint 10th to joint 8th. And there's another Pearl, this is called the Pearls International Studies, another uh, study coming out next month. We'll see what those results. We've risen in maths. Uh, the Tim study, very significant improvement in year five children. And in PISA, we've, in maths, we've gone from 28th to 18th between 2009 and 2018. So we are rising in those league tables. But we're not, we're not the world's leader. No, we're not the leader. No, How long of, do you need? There's more to do. 13 years of Conservatives in government. You've been in the job off and off almost all of that. How long do the Conservatives need to become the world's leading education nation? Well, I think whatever it takes. Don't forget other countries are improving as well. So yeah. we have not just to improve, we've got to catch up and, and overtake some other country, which is what we have been doing. But there's obviously more to do. Uh, we should probably talk about, we've had lots of questions about this, about what's going on in schools in England right now and strikes. Uh, teachers are on, on strike again next week and then again the week after. Uh, when the National Education Union rejected the government's pay offer, it wasn't even close with the nurse. 98% of May members voted against it. Um, how, how long is this going to go on for? Is this going to go on until Christmas? Well, it's now a matter for the pay review body and they will be reporting in May and we'll be responding to their recommendations before the summer. And I think it's very disappointing. We made a very good offer to the unions, all four unions, 4.5% for, for this, this coming year. And we added another £1,000 increase 
uh, non-consolidated, as it's called, to last year's pace. So that was 5.4%, another what's equivalent to 2.4%, so 7.8% for the 22-23, and then, of course, 4.5%. What people were worried about in those ballots, and we understand the, the results, we, we respect the results of those ballots, um, but what they were worried about was whether those pay awards were funded, and they are funded. We had a £2 billion extra award in the autumn statement. If you take the two years, last year and this current year, it's a 15% increase in school funding just those two years. And by 2024, it'll be 58.8 billion, the largest ever amount spent on schools, both in cash terms and in real terms and real terms per pupil. So I think it's wrong for the school sector to believe that that pay award was not funded. It actually was funded. And we were going to add an extra £620 million to the offer that we made to the unions. Do you understand why teachers feel un- overworked and unloved? They're actually, you know, the Institute of Fiscal Studies says that even including the offer that you made, teachers uh, would still be uh, pay would still be thirteen percent lower than when you came to office. They yeah. feel that they've had more and more work to do. They've actually been publicly criticised a lot by Conservative MPs and ministers. Um, they've got more work to do. They're worse off. They just feel like they're, you know, and that's you know, it's not just about percentages. It's about feeling that. As a profession, they've, they're, they're working ever harder. They've got fewer colleagues. You know, there's shortages of teachers. And they just feel like they're a bit unloved. Yes, they, they do feel that. And, and we try and address that. The, the pay rise last year and this year would have gone some way to mm. chipping away. But over the last sort of, since the banking crash, we have had issues to deal with in terms of public sector uh, finances. And that's why there has been the, the, these. But we want to address that. And that's why there was a 5.4% last year. The 4.5% this coming year is way above inflation, which is forecast by the end of this year to be 2.9%. So, of course, and also the other things we were discussing at great length with the unions was about workload. Mm. And the initiatives we, that I took to, uh, since 2016 has, has taken five hours a week off what I would call unnecessary workload, bureaucratic things that teachers were asked to do. We've cut away a lot of that. And part of our negotiations with the union, we were committing to to do even more work in that area to cut that unnecessary workload so teachers could really focus on teaching, which is what we want them to do. Why is it after 13 years of the Conservative government, we don't have enough teachers? Well, we have 24,000 more teachers than we had in 2010. We've got 465,000 teachers. The graduate market in, a, in, a, in an economy like ours is very competitive. Employers will tell you that getting the best graduates into their firms is not easy. And the same applies to teaching. But not every subject. Primary, we meet our targets. History, we meet our targets. But we do struggle sometimes, with well, certainly with physics and maths. We, we, we sometimes get 90 or, or, or 60 or 70% of our target. So we do need to do more to... And that's why we've introduced very generous tax-free bursaries to encourage the best maths graduates to come into teaching 27,000 tax-free uh, bursary. But it's interesting, that, that, well, this week, the Prime Minister's big announcement this week, it says that everyone should be doing more maths, we all need to get better at maths. Mm. We can't do it, we haven't got enough maths teachers. Well, we will, we'll find ways of recruiting more maths, as I said, with better yeah. incentives. But isn't, it's, 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 there's something, people say it's a bit rich for the Prime Minister to make a speech saying we all need to be better at maths and why aren't we better at maths, when you've been in government for 13 years we don't have enough maths teachers. Well, we have improved, as I said, in primary and secondary, we have improved significantly in our maths teaching. All the things called maths hubs where we're spreading best practice. He was saying that everyone being bad at maths is is harming the economy. And the reason that people are leaving school unable to do maths properly is because you've been in government for 13 years and you haven't got enough maths teachers. No, as I said, through the International League table, you will see the maths in primary and secondary schools has improved significantly. But you've gone from 27th to 18th in the world. That's not a world-leading education nation, is it? Well, it's a major improvement from from where we were. And if you look in things like Tim, 
gyms were even higher than that. And there's certainly been massive improvement. And, and, and what, what, but what we need to address is why so many children stop, young people stop studying math. People like me mm. stop studying math at the age of 16. Okay. And, in this dem- I knew that. <laughs> and in this demanding you know, technical economy, mm. we need to have more. Well, even, what, even if you're doing a creative subject, you need to have some math. So we, the Prime Minister launched the policy at the London Screen, Screen Academy. Films, if you mm. want to make a film, you need to have math, yeah. especially if you're behind the camera. It, it, the interesting point you made about the recruitment uh, issue, of trying to, particularly trying to get graduates to go into teaching. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking on the show about this, and somebody made the point that because so many other graduate jobs are now hybrid, partly working from home, a bit more flexible, as well as you know, not always going to the office, you, you can't do that if you're a teacher. Do you no. think we need to rethink starting salaries and the package offered because other what used to be equivalent jobs graduate entry jobs are now you know there's a better lifestyle to it if you can do two or three days a week from home do you think that the the, the, one of the unexpected impacts of the pandemic is that actually we do need to rethink making teaching a more appealing thing I think there's something in that. Um, you can't work from home if you're yeah. a teacher. You've got to be with the children. So we do want to. We want a well-rewarded, well-motivated profession. We, we've we've increased starting salaries to thirty thousand. The average salary of a classroom teacher is now thirty-nine thousand five hundred. And you know, if you rise through the ranks quickly, you can be a head teacher. The secondary head teacher, the average salary is 94000 So it is a good profession to come into. Now is a good time to come into teaching. And you, get the, you have the privilege of being able to teach children and to, and to shape their lives for the future and have a major impact on the outcomes of those children. So it's a worthwhile profession to come into for young people. Uh, one other impact of COVID, and we've had lots of messages on this. Why are parents' evenings still being held on Zoom? Uh, for lots of parents, and I'd count myself in this, it was the only time you really went into the school to see the teacher, to look at the work. You know, there are lots of parents now who never go into schools. Everything's done on Zoom. It's a time-limited thing. Should, should schools stop doing parents' evenings on Zoom? Well, that's a matter for, for the school. But I would yeah. say that given that the, we're out of the pandemic, it probably is time to, to have those parents' evenings at, uh, at school. But for some parents, actually, it's more convenient for them to, to have the meeting with the, with the teacher on Zoom. You know, increasingly, in, in all walks of life now, meetings are now being held on Zoom that used to be held uh, in person. Um, uh, on a uh, similar sort of technological note, four years ago, I spoke to you when I was uh, for the Times. I think I on the front page. You told me schools should ban yeah. mobile phones. How's that going? Well, I think the, we have a lot of guidance now that says that that uh, we need to make sure that children ration their use of mobile phones. They need to be able to sleep at night so they're not tight sleepy when they come into schools. We do give head teachers the discretion to to ban phones from the classroom if they wish to do so, and I think increasingly schools are doing that. Um, it's been reported the government's considering issuing guidance to single-sex schools in England so they cannot be legally obliged to take transgender pupils. Do you, do you think a, sh- a school should be able to base admissions on sex rather than gender identity? That's something that we're working on right now. We're, we're, we're very swiftly going to be publishing fairly soon the transgender guidance mm. for schools. These are very, very sensitive matters and we need to make sure that we take advice from all the experts in the field. We're doing that right now and they'll be, we'll be publishing trans transgender guidance for schools very shortly. Um, it, also another thing that's happening in schools, schools are being hit by protests against rules banning trips to the toilet during lessons. I, mean, I assume you see all these. Yes. Fueled a lot, in large part, it seems to be, by videos on TikTok. Are you worried about that, that sort of thing, those sort of protests? I worry about social media mm. and the impact it's having, uh, not just on ed- children and schools, but on general, on the, the whole political discourse that we have in this country. I think it's far more aggressive than it needs to be. But I, what I would also say is that it's wonderful when children take an interest in what's going on in their school 
school and in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in our country as a whole. But there are ways of expressing your views. And I think not disrupting other children's education is not the right approach to take. One thing that struck me, because I, and I remember covering so much with Michael Gove and your announcements early on about, you know, a much more knowledge-based uh, um, uh, curriculum. Has it been sort of slightly overtaken by tech? It's essentially we've got a rote curriculum when now G- chat GBT can do all of your rote uh, knowledge. Is it... Is it coming at the wrong time that technology is developing so much now? What's the point of people learning lists of dates and facts when you can get them on, you know, you can get a, a, a bot to write the essay? This isn't a new debate. It didn't, it didn't come with Google or ChatGTP. This debate's been going back right back to the 1920s when they said then you can look things up in an encyclopedia. You don't need knowledge. You do need knowledge because you need knowledge to be creative, to be, to be a problem solver, to be a critical thinker. And that's what we... To be a really good reader, you need to have a wide vocabulary. And having a wide vocabulary to get that, you need knowledge. So, so I think this debate's been going on for many decades, but I'm very firmly of the view, and this is something that Michael Gove and I changed dramatically in 2010, moving the curriculum to a knowledge-based approach to the curriculum. And you, you talk to people like Daniel Willingham, who's, who his book, um, Why Students Don't Like School, your working memory is relatively small, can only hold you know, half a dozen new pieces of information. So if you want to be a critical thinker, if you want to be creative, you need to have heard you know, all the classical music, all the work, you know, people like Sting, they've heard music from around the world. If you want to write, you know, um, a, a novel, you want to write TV programmes, you've got to be immersed in the yeah. cultural knowledge of society. And that's what we've sought to do since 2010. And it's also about social justice, that children who come from, you know, advantaged homes, they get that knowledge at home. And E.D. Hirsch talks about knowledge building on knowledge. And it's, it's very unfair if the school itself doesn't give those children knowledge. So it makes an unfair comparison with children who come from homes that are knowledge-rich. So we, be, we feel very strongly that the, the curriculum must be knowledge-rich. It's not just about dates. It's about understanding the complexity of the history behind those dates, yeah. about the world, about the important science. You know, Newton talks about, you know, if I can see further than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Well, that means learning about yeah. what those giants taught. So that's been very much the thrust of our education policy since 2010. Is it all right, do you think, that some schools teach GCSEs in just two years, 10 years, 10, 11, and lots have moved to doing it in year 9, 10, 11? So actually you miss out on a year of, of the more general subjects. I, I, I feel very strongly that the GCSE is a two-year course and it should be taught in two years. And it's a, it's a mistake to miss out that, years of no, that year of knowledge uh, in year nine. So I, I, that's, you know, that's, what we need to do is, at key stage three, those three years, seven, eight and nine, we do need to make sure that, that is, those years are used productively for young people. Lovely stuff. Right, we've got some calls, I think. Siobhan is in Weymouth. Morning, Siobhan. Good morning. Hello. Uh, nice to have you with us. You are talking to Nick Gibb. What's your question? Thank you. Uh, yes, I wanted to ask about uh, coastal schools, particularly in deprived areas, where we're finding that children are not performing as well as those who are in economically deprived urban areas. So coastal schools face particular economic isolation and educational isolation um, and geographical remoteness, cultural isolation, often deprivation. There's problems with resources, resource allocation, recruitment, retention, and I'd really like to know what this government is going to do to face up to the problems that are experienced by our young people on in our coastal areas. Nick, coastal schools. Yes, it's not. It's not when you look at the education system in, on a regional basis, or, or whether it's coastal or rural or, or inner cities. There's no pattern actually. What what matters is whether the school uh, is well led with high expectations of all their pupils. Whether they teach a really rigorous 
I would say again, knowledge-rich yeah. curriculum, how they teach reading. Are they using evidence-based approaches to teaching reading through phonics? Are they using you know, what, what's called math mastery, the, the Eastern Southeast Asian approach to teaching arithmetic in primary schools and so on? And I could take you to schools on, in coastal areas, in dep areas of deprivation that are achieving stellar, absolutely amazingly high results for those children. It's all about expectations. It's about leadership. It's about adopting evidence-based approaches. Is it harder to recruit, to, when we go back to the recruitment problem, is it harder to recruit teachers in, in deprived coastal areas? Yes, of course. It, it can be. I mean, some people love to live by, mm. by the sea. Um, it can be more challenging to recruit in, in areas of, of deprivation. And that's where we do have a number of incentives to help schools. We give schools a lot more money based on deprivation. So the, if you look at the national funding form, you, you'll see that schools serving deprived areas really do receive significantly more money than other schools. And also there's a pupil premium on top of that, which is £2.9 billion extra for every, you know, that goes towards children who are on free school meals. So, so schools in areas of deprivation have significant, significantly more resources to be able to pay teachers more so that they can recruit. Interesting, you mentioned the pupil premium. Uh, so, sorry, Siobhan, we'll let you go. Thank you very much for coming on. That was Siobhan there uh, on the line. Uh, we've had somebody just texted in, Ray says, uh, as a former secretary school chaplain, the free school meals income level is preposterously low and it hasn't been raised in over a decade. The pupil premium was a great intervention in... Uh, 2010-11, uh, uh, sorry, great intervention 10-11 years ago, but it's not increased either. They help the poorest families incredibly and cost the FE very little. Is that right that it hasn't gone up over that time? Well, it's gone up this year. When it was 2.6 billion last year, it's 2.9 billion uh, uh, this coming year. Uh, but it's not, that's not the only way that we fund schools for deprivation. The national funding formula has within it. We give extra money to schools based on the number of pupils on free school meals, based on where they live, their postcode area of where they live, if they have low prior attainment, if they speak English as a second language. All these factors add several, you know, thousand pounds per pupil per for those schools. OK, I think we've got Emma in Sheffield with us. Morning, Emma. Hi, morning. Thanks for having me on. No, it's good to have you here. Um, what's your question for Nick? Yeah, so I need to explain the situation that we've found ourselves in. My daughter goes to uh, a large comprehensive school in Sheffield called uh, King Edward VII School. Uh, in September, it had uh, an Ofsted inspection, and most areas were found to be good, but it was graded inadequate on safeguarding and leadership, and because of that, it's been graded inadequate overall. It's the last remaining local authority secondary school in Sheffield, and now it's undergoing forced academisation because of all this. And a large group of parents have been campaigning on this since January. We've got a large protest uh, organised for the weekend. Local MPs, councillors all agree with us, agree with the school, agree with the vast majority of parents that forced academisation is not appropriate for King Edward, which is broadly a good school. And Ofsted had lots of positive things to say about it. As parents, we feel this whole process should be should be paused and the school given on given the opportunity to make any changes that need to be made. We're not saying improvements can't be made, yeah. but it's not a failing school. So my question is, are Ofsted inspections fit for purpose if a school found to be good in most areas can be rated as inadequate overall? Well, this is because safeguarding is such an important part of what a school does. And so it's called a limiting judgment. So if it fails on safeguarding, then the whole school fails, regardless of the academic standards of the school, because of the importance of safeguarding uh, children. But in terms of academisation, no, look, you know, since 2010... 
we, we've gone from 68% of schools being good or outstanding to 88% now. And, and part of that reason is academization. It's not a, it's not a punishment, academization. It's, it gives professional autonomy to the school. And they'll have a sponsor to help them deal with the problems of safeguarding, to help them improve. Um, but, they, but the whole notion of giving schools that autonomy... That comes what if they from a, don't want it? Well, that's, you know, the people, they don't, own, they don't own the school. I mean, it's up to, what we want to do is, across the system as a whole, do everything we can to improve standards. And we know that the academisation programme has resulted in standards rising. We know that those schools that were inadequate, that, were, that have become sponsored academies, a large proportion of those schools are now good or outstanding because of the process of academisation. So it's a good thing, and it gives professional autonomy to teachers. So that's the, that's the forced academisation. But what about Ofsted? There's been a lot of debate about Ofsted, not least following uh, the death of, uh, of Ruth Perry, uh, whose school was downgraded. Um, is there a problem with Ofsted? It is, and what's going on? Is it because there weren't inspections during COVID and so changes happened in schools? Have the goalposts been moved, essentially, for teachers who heads who thought they were running good schools by the rules, now suddenly it turns out that what was, everyone thought was a good school is suddenly being downgraded? Part of the issue is that what Michael Gove and I did back in 2010 is we said if you are a, an outstanding school, you will be exempt from Ofsted inspections. But as the years went by, there were schools that hadn't been inspected for 10, 12, 15 years. So we had to change... Was that, was that a mistake? No, because at the time, we had to focus their resources on a very significant proportion, 32% of schools that were not good or outstanding. Now we've re reduced that to um, to 12%. So now is the time to start inspecting those outstanding schools. And therefore, there, there will be schools that will be downgraded from outstanding to something else. But also, but so having said... Wasn't that just a mistake then? That to leave it for so long, 5, 10, 15 years without being inspected? I don't think it was a mistake because... Uh, you know, we knew they were good schools and we had to focus, as I said, resources on those schools that were mm. underperforming. And there's a limited resource to, for often to, to the school system as a whole. So we had to focus it. But now what's happening, I, having said all that, I, I, you know, the, the, people are now saying, well, is the limiting judgment uh, the right mm. approach? So that's something that we look at. And, that is and, something we're going to look at? Yeah, we will look yeah. at that. And Ofsted, well, rather, Ofsted will look, will look at that in conjunction with us. And Ofsted, of course, continues to, to, to ensure that its systems are producing the most accurate inspections that they can. Is there anything you, do, you, you can do to help Emma in Sheffield? Well, I, I wouldn't worry too much about academisation. It, it, it's, it's a liberating uh, approach. Do you, do you feel liberated, Emma? No, I feel an academy has been selected that is completely inappropriate and does not have the experience, capacity or track record to manage a school like King Edward. It's, the lack of transparency has been... Galling, mm. and no, I do not feel liberated <laughs> at all. Well, it's good to... Thanks for coming on anyway, Emma. Uh, thanks for, for, for joining us. Emma in Sheffield there. Uh, Nick Gibb, before we let me go, we want to talk about The Simpsons. Uh, I want to show you something on the screen behind you. It's an episode of The Simpsons called Love Indubitably. <laughs> it's in the House of Commons. Y you were in The Simpsons. A cameo. Yes. yes. <laughs> how did this speaking happen? part. How did you... Look, there you are. Look, there you are behind you. <laughs> yes. How did... How... I mean, it's not a bad likeness... How on earth did you end up in an episode of The Simpsons? Well, I met some of the writers about 20 years ago. And we became very good very good friends. And actually, it's interesting. We, you know, I don't have a huge number of friends, but those friends I do have, I value very much, you know, grappling to their soul with, with hoops of steel. And, and we've become extremely good friends. And actually, they're wonderful people that, that write The Simpsons. And they're very creative. And actually, they, they're very knowledgeable people. And it's, it's one of the examples of, of how... Uh, if you want to be creative, you do have to have that vast hinterland of knowledge that those, that both Tim Long and 
uh, Al Jean have to, to be able to be to write this most wonderful TV series. Did you have a speaking part? No, this is not a speaking part. <laughs> I do dance. If you have an, an animation, you'll see all the MPs there are dancing well, we behind. We haven't got that. Do you want to dance for us live? Uh, I will not be doing that now in front of Times Radio. Thank you very much. Oh, that's a shame. I think that would have been very good for, for <laughs> pupils to share on the TikTok. Uh, Nick. Nick, really good to speak to you. Uh, we've had loads and loads of I hope we got through uh, through lots of Nick Gibb. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, Nick Gibb, there, the schools minister. Uh, thanks so much for that. And thank you so much for all of your messages. Uh, I think we will, we'll return. You know, we're hurtling into exam season, so I'm sure we'll return to, to education uh, in the coming weeks um, and uh, try and answer some more of your questions. Thanks so much for that. You'll be able to listen back to Nick uh, on the Red Box podcast a bit later on as well. Right, coming up, we're going to keep an eye on what is going on in Westminster and this report from. Do you think uh, while you're here, Nick, is, is well, Dominic? Rob still be Deputy Prime Minister by the end of the day? Well, look, he's a wonderful fellow. He's done wonderful things for our country. We'll have to see what the report has to say. And bullying, presumably you take a very uh, hard line on bullying in schools as, as well as in the Absolutely. cabinet? Absolutely. I think bullying, there's no place for bullying in professional life. There's certainly no place for bullying uh, in our schools. And I like to think that increasingly schools are safe places, calm places where children can, can learn and, and make the best of their education. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. 